good humans, and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science edition number 30. We made it. I am Lefteris, and this is a different version of the podcast as we'll answer questions like what is innovation, what is digital, what is social innovation, and what are the social theories researchers use in order to unpack corporations that are moving into digital social innovation space. This is all very complicated, but don't worry. Uh, we'll talk with Ms. Roslina Chai, an executive doctoral researcher from Ecole Dupont of Paris. One other thing we'll be f- gonna figure out is what exactly is an executive doctoral researcher. But before we go on with the show, let's do our housekeeping. If you like what you hear today, consider sharing this episode. And if you want to go to Apple Podcasts and write a review, that will help the podcast immensely. Also, if you want to help in a more material way, consider becoming a patron in my patron page. That is in the description of the podcast. There, there are different tiers and benefits that exist, and your support will help me expand the content faster and better. Let's now meet Ms. Roslina Chai. Hi, my name is Roslina Chai, and I am currently an executive doctoral candidate affiliated with Ecole des Ponts Business School, based in Paris. So some of you may be wondering, what is an executive doctoral program, specifically in business administration. So unlike a traditional PhD program, an EDBA is a practice-based doctoral research degree whereby professionals marry academic rigor and professional practice to research frontline challenges. And the hope is that we will be able to propose solutions or perspectives and perhaps even lay the groundwork for new theories that is grounded in both academic theories and also real-life professional experiences. So that is one of the most critical differences between the two. This interview had many firsts for me. First time in interviewing someone doing this kind of new PhD and also doing a PhD in a more business environment. So, when you're pursuing a doctorate degree and working at the same time, does that mean that your work and your studies overlap? My professional background is somewhat unconventional in that I'm a lawyer and I founded six companies in six different industries. And beyond that, I also am involved in uh, different things. Uh, which is to say that my research is more a reflection of the totality of my professional life. And the thread which runs through it is really corporate social innovation. It sounds easy for me to say it now, but as I'm sure you can identify with, coming out with your research question is an agonizing process. <laughs> Um, I don't know if this is a comparable struggle uh, between social science research and hard science research, but to come up with your research domain in a way that aligns with existing uh, theoretical domains is not the simplest thing to do. So one of the uh, struggles that a lot of us practitioner scholars have to reconcile is why do we have to strictly adhere to theoretical lineage? So then we go in and we have this vague idea that, you know, we've been working how many decades and we've been observing certain recurring themes in our professional life and we have to shrink two, three, four decades of professional experience into one research domain. That sucks. So it has taken me, I think, a good two to three years to say quite confidently that the umbrella research domain is corporate social innovation. So Mrs. Chai reached to the conclusion of studying corporate social innovation. Now, I know all of these words, which is a great first step, but each word is a different concept that has a huge amount of bibliography in itself. For about a hundred years or so, innovation has 
become quite a hot topic. And it's important to state that the word innovation in the way that I'm using it is not synonymous with technology. It is a simple concept of doing things in a better way, which can be commercialized. I'm obviously oversimplifying a huge body of academic research. So that is one uh, theoretical domain. The second is the concept of social, right? So a couple of decades ago, the domain of the social and social, you can say from social sciences, from anthropology, and even more recently from psychology, started to be brought together with the concept of innovation, which has, uh, up until quite recently, um, I mean, only recently has it moved into the domains of economics. Um, so this too has now come together, giving birth to something new, which is known as social innovation. Okay, so that has kind of emerged as its own discrete research domain. So we went from innovation, one domain, social, second domain, social innovation, third domain. Now, you have to add to this a fourth domain, which is the concept of the corporation. What is a corporation? And this largely comes from the legal side. So we're now in the word corporate social innovation, at least this is what I am proposing should be done. You are marrying uh, three very different research traditions. I'm using the word tradition quite deliberately because within each tradition are very unique assumptions about epistemology, about ontology, axiology, all these beautiful logic words, right? Which simply means that everyone has a different priority when it comes to determining what is knowledge, what is worth knowing, and what are legitimate ways of acquiring that knowledge. So three different worldviews trying to come together. Corporate social innovation. We started talking about corporate social innovation, but as we established, all these theories have different ways of looking at things. However, when it comes to doing research, one of the main problems researchers face is find theoretical links between these theoretical frameworks in order to study something new. In order for the word corporate social innovation to truly have any theoretical oomph, there has to be an internal coherence between and among these three different worldviews. And that is the kind of research, um, at least according to what I have found, which has not been done. There are a lot of assumptions being made about what innovation is, what social is, and what corporate is, which has not been rigorously unpacked for the purpose of creating coherence. For that reason, uh, and this is one of the methodologies that I have chosen, is called an integrated literature review. So it's a social science research methodology which aims to really rigorously unpack, and I'm using that word again quite deliberately, it is not to analyze per se, it is to distill the essence of each worldview to discover what is that thing which makes a corporation a corporation, and is there any element within that construct that can be naturally allied with the concept of innovation, right? So within those, this is a proposal and somebody else who's doing 
the same research using the same methodology may come up with different linkages. Now, in the context of a super app, there is an additional complication that has to be addressed. I didn't say resolved, I say addressed. And it's a very elegant question. What the hell is digital? <laughs> now, everybody uses that word so naturally. So it's a little bit like boredom. Everybody assumes they understand it until you ask them to define it. Okay? So my attempt is to actually come into this uh, research by trying to first understand the theory of the digital object. Here we have the first mention of the word super app. A super app is a mobile app that consolidates multiple services like taxi rides, food delivery, groceries, insurance, and much more. Ms. Chai is studying these super apps and our digital footprint in them. But as she started explaining, defining digital is easier said than done. There are actually many different ways you can construct a virtual world. Digital is only one. And by digital, we simply mean anything that can be understood in different combinations of zero and one. It's that simple, right? But from zero and one, the possibilities are infinite. Okay? But in order to translate the real world, physical world, into digits of zero and one, you need to go through a computational process. You need to go through a process of making something physical abstract, right? So right now we're having this conversation is recorded in air quotes digitally. They are algorithms that which has already decided uh, which part of this conversation in terms of tone, in terms of so many other things, is actually recorded and which are not, right? So the, the range. But who gets to make that decision? It's the same when it comes to uh, things that digi digitally converts into visual images, right? So that computational process, that quantification process, that digitization process is actually a process filled with judgment. Somebody has to decide what to capture and what not to capture and what counts as a digital representation of physical reality. Even if I stop here, I hope those who are listening can already sense the political nature or the possible politicizing of this kind of decision, right? Now, I'm going to fast forward a few steps and say, there is this uh, contentious concept that proposes that a lot of decisions about our daily life is actually made based on an abstracted reality of who we are. Okay? So there is a version of Lefteris that is living and breathing. But they are avatars of Lefteris uh, floating around in the virtual world, digital world, that is actually owned by corporations. This virtual avatar of Lefteris has been composed based on decisions made by various engineers as to what counts as Lefteris. And it could actually also contain data that has been imported from other sources based on Lefteris um, digital footprint, which may or may not actually be the real terrorist. But as far as the company is concerned, the avatar is more real than the physical terrorist. And decisions about your credit rating, decisions possibly about 
whether you get a mortgage in the future, possibly about your insurance premium, is based on the avatar and not the real lecturers. I feel Ms. Chai has done a great job compartmentalizing the different concepts before trying to structure a whole story and basically end up with the problem that she's studying. The topic that she's studying can get politically charged, but it is important to understand that there are academic schools of thought that are studying real-life interactions and are trying to analyze them just so that we have a better understanding of it before trying to figure out what the solution is or if there's a solution at all. In the case of digital avatars, for example. Mrs. Chai gives us an example that firstly made me think of my own presence on the internet, but also the lives of some people that use the internet to live in the real world. Now we are at the stage where there is the real physical left areas and there are multiple avatars of left areas depending on who owns what data, right? Left by your digital footprint. Okay. So... The next question to ask is, if there are companies uh, that aspires to use technology to do good, to innovate for good, they are basing their decision on what constitutes as good from the perspective of innovation, okay, on Lefteris avatars, okay? Now, this Lefteris avatars is not static. Because we are supposedly in the world of big data, there remains a tendency that more is better. So companies, uh, I'm not saying all, but there is this general tendency of wanting to make this avatar as real as possible Let's not ask what real means in the world of avatars, right? So they, <laughs> but they're constantly trying to, let's just say, add to this avatar to make it as close to this physical left terrace as possible. But remember, they've never met you, right? Nobody came and knocked on your door like, can we have a chat with you, please? Right? So over time... They are the layers that get added to the avatars, you have to ask, what the hell is it? How is it that my avatar, as in the Lefteris avatar, has become so much more important when it comes to how a company makes decisions versus the real me? But the impact of those decisions have a very real consequence in your physical life. Right? Now, we haven't gotten very political. Let's talk about uh, food delivery people who work for platforms uh, like Grab, Deliveroo, Food Panda. They have uh, become a very contentious category. Because on one hand, they, the companies are claiming that they're not employees, so therefore they're not entitled to the employment benefits. And I'm starting with that because already the footing is very slippery, um, especially during COVID time. But where the conversation gets interesting when it comes to corporate social innovation in the technology context, specifically apps, is that these people are being managed like employees, even though they're not employees, because every movement is supposedly being tracked by virtue of being on that app. But what is being tracked are digital representations of their real life. So let's say that a food delivery person has a quota they have to meet within a certain time period. What the app can show you is whether or not this food deliverer satisfy the quota or not. What this app cannot tell you is that the food deliverer, because the weather was wet, 
got into a small little accident because he was trying not to run over and kill an old lady's cat. But all that matters is what the app records. So for that reason, it can be exceedingly punitive and not very human. So this is known as、uh, algorithmic management. When the digital representation of your work performance is more accurate, quote unquote, than what you are actually doing, the same argument goes for、uh, drivers who drive for apps like Uber, Grab, Lyft, Rider, right? Telematics. It captures data, but it does not capture reality. So we are making a confusion between what is data and what is reality. If that kind of distinction is not being accounted for in the digital world, the next natural question is: Then what exactly do you mean when you say that you are innovating for the social good? What exactly is the social good in this equation? Then comes the last piece, which is the corporate. So, in most jurisdiction, the word corporate has come to be synonymous with a legal entity that exists to maximize shareholder profit. If the entire reason why you exist as a legal entity is to make money for people who invest in you. The next logical question is: Are you able to reconcile a social good, which may require you to make decisions that cost money, which is money you have to take away from your shareholder, with the reason why you exist, which is to make money for shareholders? Right. So when the rubber hits the road, you already have. Two inherent tensions: one between social and innovation, and one between corporate and social. How is it then that you can claim that corporate social innovation automatically equals to doing good? That is the conundrum to be resolved. As Mrs. Chai was talking, I had in my head that in her work, there are aspects of a corporation. That will come in conflict with the terms social good, but that's not exactly true. Mrs. Chai uses the word paradoxes instead to describe this. The word paradox is deliberate because it is not an either-or. Most people frame、uh, conversations as either profit or social good. I don't think. That is the right question to ask. So, if it is possible to precisely identify paradoxes, then it becomes theoretically easier to establish processes of reconciling the paradoxes. And here, you have to then account for complexity theories. Um, as and I think maybe systems theory, complexity theory, chaos theory, may be the only sensible first approach to try to reconcile these paradoxes. This has been a age-old struggle between what we think. Business, economics, and corporations are meant to do versus what society exists for. It frustrates me that it's been a couple of millennia and we still haven't quite resolved that.、Um, I'm not harboring any. Grand illusions. 
um, that my research will like, oh my gosh, right? But the very least that I'm hoping to do is to bring very clear language. So we stop using terminologies um, and actually think that we are meaning the same thing. So a simple example is even if you and I are talking about grapes, you assume I know what grape is, I assume you know what grape is. But do you want to guess how many flavors of grapes there are in the world? <laughs> yeah. And that's just grapes. Oh my God, grape is a real thing, right? Innovation is a concept that we made out and we all assume we're talking about the same thing. Um, but within that, I think it's also an interesting way to address systemic power imbalances. So one of the concepts I, I find very interesting is algorithmic colonialism. So it basically, and this is not metaphorical, it's a literal comparison, okay, that technology companies, by virtue of the ubiquity of our smartphone, a lot of people sleep with their smartphones. Right. That, that is how intimate the technology, both in terms of software and hardware, it has become to us. Because of the smartphone, technology companies can now enter into very private domains of our life, which has never been possible. Right? So for the first time, economics has the opportunity to encroach into the most intimate moments of our life and commercialize it. So this is not, the conversation is not about uh, data, even though that is a really, really huge conversation, data democracy. What I want to point out is that they are scholars who are highlighting the colonial behavior of technology companies, where even our private moments have become property that has the opportunity to be commercialized. Right? So it's the concept of grabbing land. The colonial masters see land, they grab it, they didn't ask whether they could. The technology companies see our private lives as land, they grab it without asking whether they could. We've been talking a lot about Mrs. Chai's work and what she analyzes in these corporations, but I wanted to take a step back and understand how someone starts in order to unpack a topic such as this. To the outside world, analyzing a corporation seems easy since everybody has an experience interacting with businesses, but in an academic setting, people that live in different parts of the world need to talk the same language when they discuss their analysis. The first thing, apparently, to create a common understanding comes with the value proposition canvas. The starting point is the value proposition canvas. It's a framework that helps a business person narrow down exactly what value they are trying to deliver. And how do you create that? How do you organize your resources in order to create and deliver? And the third component, capture the value. So this is the essence of the business model. How do I create value? How do I deliver value? How do I capture the value? Capture essentially means earn money, right? And make profit from it. Okay? So you cannot organize your resources to optimize the creation, delivery, and capture if you do not have a clear idea what value you're trying to deliver and to whom are you trying to deliver that. We have to take yet another step back. In order to answer that question, 
you need to have some idea, some idea, and this is really a guessing game, right? What kind of pains, pain as in suffering pain, are you trying to alleviate? Right? It's very rare. Um, Steve Jobs has proven otherwise, but Steve Jobs is Steve Jobs. It is very rare in a business setting where you're trying to sell people something they don't fundamentally need. Okay, to be very clear, let me just say that luxury goods is a need for a lot of people. Okay, but that's another conversation. So without going into the semantics, that next layer I was talking about to determine the value is you trying to understand what pain you're trying to resolve. A company exists to figure out this equation, to test it in the market, and to consistently remain relevant. So a lot of companies fail when they do this step so beautifully the first time, and they do not keep up with the times. So they keep offering the same value proposition, even though it may have become outdated. And since now we have a framework to unpack and analyze the basics of what a company slash business or corporation is, then in the paper that Mrs. Chai published, she was discussing about different innovation theories and how to use these theories in the context of analyzing or unpacking a business. In order for you as company A to remain in business and to remain profitable, you have to be doing something better than company B, who is trying to service the same population. This is where the concept of innovation comes in. Right? So you have an Uber and a Grab. On the surface, they seem to be trying to deliver the same service to similar groups of people. So how does an Uber or how does a Grab stay in business, hopefully with profits, right? Not just bleeding money. So the idea is you have to innovate. Okay? So that means you have to be doing something consistently better than your competitor. Now, the concept of open innovation, which is one of the theories proposed in the teaching note, is to ask the students to consider what does it take to innovate in a digital environment where the boundaries of your business, let's call it that, is very fluid and very porous, right? Your competitive advantage um, exists in your algorithms, which is in the cloud. It exists, hopefully, in your people. It exists, hopefully, in the way you organize your resources. Okay? But in order for all these three elements, and I've only just mentioned three, to be sustainable, you can't just focus internally. Because as an app, you are very dependent on other people to sustain your value proposition. Because a super app is essentially a platform where different services are bundled together so that it creates additional value. Without the private car drivers, without the restaurant owners, right? without the merchants, Grab as a super app doesn't exist. So, in this situation where your value proposition is directly dependent on third party to sustain it, the way that you innovate can no longer be in a closed system. So, that is a concept of open innovation. That sounds simple until you try to apply it. Um, 
Then there is a concept of the diffusion of innovation, right? which is to say, so this is the famous curve. Um, most, I think, popularly displayed with Apple. This is how it became all over the place. So when you plan your innovation journey, you have to account for the fact that different people are willing to take a risk with that product or that service that you innovate because it is not yet stable. So diffusion of innovation basically divides your target population into the early adopters. Those guys who will sleep outside an Apple store overnight just so that they're the first, right? And then they can get on a blog and say, I have the first. To those guys, they call them the leg arts, uh, who say, oh, everybody has tried it. It must be good. It must be safe, right? So by the time the leg arts come on, the early adopters may be two generations ahead already. So when you plan for your resources, you have to account for the fact that different people have different risk appetite to try different things at different phases of your innovation journey. As a business manager, this is resource allocation. You cannot count on the fact that, oh my gosh, my iPhone 12 is going to be so damn kick-ass and just pour everything you have into there. You just kind of have to spread it out. The first two theories that I talked about sounds very business, like this is stuff that PowerPoints and board meetings and stuff like that, right? Okay. Now you can imagine that when you are making the kind of decisions uh, using an open innovation approach or diffusion of innovation approach, it's very easy to just think about how to make the most profit, right? Now, the reason I chose Grab as a study is because they have been very explicit from day one that they want to leverage digital technology to improve the lives of Southeast Asians. So that is an explicit social mission. Okay? In order to do that, you cannot just use those two innovation theories to ground your decisions. You have to then consider the social impact. Social innovation, uh, if you go on Google Scholar and you Google any of the eminent journals, they, you will very quickly see that a majority of academics converge on the agreement that social innovation is what they call an underdefined construct, which means that they, nobody can agree exactly what the hell it is. Okay? Except for, we want to do good. That's the only thing they can agree on. But what the hell the process looks like, nobody can agree on. But that has not stopped governments from using social innovation as a policy mechanism. And it's very common for you to hear that the UK government, the Obama government, um, has set up social innovation funds, processes, labs, right? Even though nobody really knows what it is. So the danger is, if we don't really understand what social innovation is, let alone how to attain it, don't even talk about how to measure it, okay? How then can we help business decision makers make decisions that are supposedly socially innovative? What is the problem there, you think? Because everybody's trying to do good. Doing good is not the same as not doing harm. In economics, this is called negative externalities. So a company is going to say, let's take Facebook because that's an easy example. Because of Facebook, the world has become more connected and people cannot even start revolutions 
using social media. It is not our responsibility that uh, it can also start a uh, coup in Myanmar. It's also not our responsibility that it can equally spread fake news. By the way, I'm not saying that this is Facebook's position. I'm using that as an example. This has to be very clear, right? So the question becomes, for every decision that a business makes, it has consequences. How do you decide where to draw the line? Where do you agree with a company that says, my responsibility stops at point D? Anything that happens on EFG, not my responsibility. Now, if you can accept that, then you have to ask, so then what exactly does social innovation mean? If you can so conveniently draw a line and say, anything beyond this point, I am not responsible for. So who pays the bill? So that is one of the essential unresolved argument within the world of social innovation, which is why there is a lot of hesitancy to even call that a theory. Mrs. Chai has been talking about paradoxes that exist in companies, especially in the frame of corporate social innovation. While she couldn't reveal specific examples, as it was part of a future research, she could give broader strokes about categories of paradoxes. The first one is going to be what is loosely known as algorithmic management, right? Which is what exactly is a company's responsibility, legal duty of care to stakeholders whom they depend 100% on to generate those profits. Okay? That is going to be a huge discussion point. That's one. The second um, is in the realm of, let's call it artificial intelligence uh, decisions. To what extent can you hold a company responsible for algorithmic decisions based on any form of automated artificial intelligence? So there are conversations going on whether or not artificial intelligence can be conferred what is known as legal personhood. So instead of suing the company, you sue the artificial intelligence. Okay, that's a second area of big discussion. Um, the third area of discussion really is around personal data. The amount of data that a super app has on any individual user is indescribable. Yeah. And because it is not public information, nobody really knows what we're talking about. So there's a lot of conjectures around this area, and I am actually very much looking forward to the day when that can be more transparent and we actually can start understanding where the boundaries are and just how big of a thing we're looking at. Now that has to do with what is known as digital sovereignty, which is because we are dealing with the digital world, the data that a company has on any individual user crosses national geographic boundaries. So a simple way of thinking about it is I am collecting data in Singapore on a UK citizen and I am monetizing that data of the UK citizen 
that are paying the UK's government no tax whatsoever. So there is now, there has already uh, begun the movement of countries creating sovereignty around their digital domains. So just top of my mind, this would be three areas to watch. And now that we know more or less the topic of research, the identification of the paradoxes when it comes to decision-making for social corporate innovation, and all the social theories that are used in order to unpack the companies, I was wondering, what's the personal story of Mrs. Chai? How did she end up doing this research? And what is the potential goal that she has? I come from a family of engineers, and they are literally every possible branch of engineering you can find within my family, both my father and mother's side. Just by context, I think I have something like 14, 15 uncles and aunties on each side, which means I have almost 30 uncle and aunties. Okay, most of them are male, so we basically cover all branches of engineering. Um, which means I grew up within a very logical uh, framework. Sorry, I grew up among people who view reality in a very mechanical way. Then I ended up in law by accident because I couldn't stand the idea of medicine. And I thought that law was light years away from engineering, how wrong I was, in a good way. Because law is actually amazingly system-based. Everything is about logic and you know, step one, step two, step three. And the reason why I put this two actually together in terms of the way that the perspective of reality is been approached is when I started a management training program back when those programs still had a lot of money they put us through an entire battery of tests just to figure out what our natural talent is regardless of what degrees we took and i came out i scored pretty high for information technology for a lawyer okay i was stunned i said no this is you got it wrong the reason i protested was because i didn't want to be assigned to anything technical I got assigned to a technical project and then I discovered that I love technology, digital technology, and I couldn't for the life of me understand what was so attractive about it. Long story short, professionally, I actually ended up in a lot of technical areas. Two of the companies I founded, uh, one is in Formula One racing technology. Another one is in digital technology. And it was something that it seems I could instinctively grasp. And that is when I understood the limitations of making decisions based on abstractions of reality. And it concerns me that a lot of the technology companies that are receiving very aggressive investment are run by technocrats. These are people I am so oversimplifying, just want to be sure the listeners understand this to make a point. They make decisions because they can, not because they should or shouldn't. 
everything I cannot live without Brett. I just want to say that first. Absolutely love the technology. It's very sexy and I can recognize the brilliance and the elegance. But another part of me is wondering, where is this all going? Grab has been around for 2012, coming up to 10 years now. And their growth has been nothing less than phenomenal, right? The same can be said for Uber, the same can be said for a lot of tech companies. And much of the way that we live our lives now is dominated by this technology, which is still very, very, very young. And I'm hoping that we can slow down a little bit. The concern is, if I slow down, am I still going to deliver the revenues, right? But when a technology has so much impact on the minutest detail of every citizen's life, surely we have to ask harder questions of it. So the third component, which I think we haven't really touched on, and this is also an area that I am proposing for future research, is how do decision makers and technology companies, digital technology companies, actually make decisions? What is the decision architecture? How do they, if they recognize at all these paradoxes and contradictions, what is the process that they go through to reconcile them? And the answer is we don't know. When it comes to identifying how companies make decisions, the discussion can be expanded and then you would come in a more politically charged discussion. However, what I learned was, much like in any other science, what people like Mrs. Chai can do is provide the tools in order to recognize these paradoxes, and then the discussion as to how to resolve these paradoxes might be more or less political. And that's it for this lengthier and special edition of Lefteris Ask Science. I'd like to thank Mrs. Rosina Chai for her time, and I'm looking forward to seeing her future work. I will leave links for more information about her and her work in the description of the show. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Special thanks to my Good Humans with a Cape supporters on Patreon, Sylvie Heck and Sophia Shanko. If you enjoy what you heard and you want to help me make more, consider becoming a patron. You can find the link for the description of the show. An even simpler way to help me out is just by sharing this episode with a friend. I really, really appreciate it anyhow. Until we meet again, take care, keep learning, and be kind.